Hey, if you would, take your Bible and turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew is that first book in the New Testament. You saw that sermon bumper to introduce our new series where we're going to walk through the book of Matthew in a pretty deliberate verse-by-verse, section-by-section process. I wouldn't tell you exactly how long this is going to take, um, but if you think about Easter 2020 as the goal to wrap up, that gives you an idea of what we're aiming for uh, with the book of Matthew. We really haven't, as a church, done a long-form walk through a book together, but I feel like God has us in a place where this could be a really powerful opportunity for, for us as a church as we work with a book like Matthew to understand what God is doing, of taking all of those stories, all of those experiences from, from the Old Testament, and then tying that together with what it means to be the church, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so Matthew is so helpful in the way that it teaches us to read the Bible as a whole, that this is not just Jesus appearing out of nowhere, that God's plan has come to fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus wasn't a plan B when everything didn't work out in the Old Testament, that all of God's work, that all of God's plans for his people are brought to fulfillment in Jesus, and then those who follow Jesus begin to live that out as the church and what it looks like to live as part of God's kingdom. And so we're going to do that as, as a church family, go on this journey through the book of Matthew. And we'll take breaks and do a few side things along the way. But it's going to primarily be a walk through the book of Matthew. At the same time, one of the things we're wanting to do is introduce to you the first week of January something we're going to call the Route 66 Bible Reading Plan. Between the beginning of January... In Easter 2020, there are 66 weeks, and there just happen to be 66 books in the Bible. And so what we've developed for you as a church, and for us as a church, is that each week we will give you one chapter from the book of the Bible that we're looking at that week, because you say, wait, Owen, I'm not that great at reading, and reading the whole Bible is very intimidating, but... To be honest with you, I've never been through all of Scripture before. And so we'll give you a chapter from Genesis and tell you a little bit about Genesis. And the next week, we'll give you a chapter from Exodus that you can read at home. And we'll send you an email to remind you. And we'll put it on Facebook to remind you. And we'll give you a book to have in your hand to remind you. And you'll be able to read a chapter from Exodus and then Leviticus, and keep going. And so if you've never been through the Bible, we want to give you a way that you can work through Scripture from beginning to end at the same time that we're going through this Matthew sermon series on Sunday morning. I think this is going to be good for our church. I think this is going to be good for us individually as followers of Jesus, learning to read Scripture, learning to understand what it means to be a part of his kingdom. And so I'm really excited uh, about the direction that we're going and in 2019. And while we were at it, we're planning 2020 as well. So it gives you an idea uh, of where things are headed. Next week, not next year, but next week, immediately after the uh, worship service on Sunday morning, we have something called Discover Emmaus. Discover Emmaus is our free 
no-obligation lunch where you're able to meet the staff, ask questions, hear more about what's going on in the church. If you've been visiting for a while, or maybe this is even your first Sunday, but if you've been coming, we would love for you to be a part of that lunch next week. You're not signing your life away. You're not saying, I'm always going to be a part of Emmaus. It's just an opportunity for us to get to know you, you to know us, and we can provide lunch for, for you and your family. And if you let us know that you have kids coming, we have childcare during that time, during that time as well. So love for you to be, be a part of that coming up next week. All right, Matthew chapter 1, we are going to look this morning at verses 1 through 17. And Lord knows I practiced these names this week, but we are actually going to let a professional read for you. You know how you open the Bible app and you hit the little audio button and that really great voice reads to you? That's going to be our sermon text reader this morning. So I'm going to look at my Bible, you look at your Bible, Listen to the word of God read.
We get mixed in with this idea. Um, Brad Davis, who is a great pastor over at Eagle Heights Church, Brad asked a really interesting question about these particular verses. He asked the question, what would it look like if you could determine your family tree? You think about where you've come from, your lineage, your family tree. What if you could pick your family tree? I don't know about you, but I would probably pick the most athletic, smartest, most attractive, most successful people I could find to be a part of my family tree to determine everything that would lead up to my time in life, my time in history. Well, as God, in a very real sense, Jesus directed the formation of his family tree. And from that, you would think that he would have chosen the most athletic, smarted, smartest, most attractive people he could find. Maybe at least a few nice people who would make you think, hey, maybe the Son of God could come from, from this family. But that's not what you find at all in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus' family tree includes murderers, prostitutes, liars. Those are just the ones we know about. Like, this is not the family tree that screams the Son of God, the Savior of the world, will come from these people. But why is it set up like that? What is Matthew trying to do by presenting what strikes us in some way as a boring list of names? Someone comes to be a follower of Jesus. They become a Christian, and so you give them a Bible. And you say, hey, this is the word of God that's going to tell you more about the God who loves you and who saved you. And they get so excited, and you're like, where do you start? I'll open up to the New Testament, because that tells me about Jesus. I just became a follower of Jesus. I should learn about this. I open up and... Maybe that was your experience. You're like, "Woo! if this is the Bible, this is not the start I was thinking about. Like, why this list of names? Here's what Matthew is doing. Here's what God is doing and giving us his word in this way. This boring list of names at the beginning of your New Testament is meant to make a kingdom connection. Kingdom Connection is the title of our series going through the book of Matthew, but it's also the purpose of what Matthew is trying to do with this genealogy, with this list of names. He is connecting the story of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. He's connecting that story to everything that has come before with the formation of God's kingdom and his people, and he's also pointing ahead to what it will mean to live as part of God's kingdom. One of the first things that Jesus says when he comes in his ministry, and we'll look at this in a few weeks, he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 1, this boring list of names, is meant to be a bridge, a connection of God's kingdom past and God's kingdom future. And the list of names actually teaches us what it means to worship the king, what it means to live as part of his kingdom. And so I'm going to walk you through parts of this and show you how it works. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, depending on your translation, 
It may say book of genealogy. It may say the generations of. It might even refer to the word origin. What's going on there? The phrase, which is two words in Greek, there at the beginning, book of genealogy, actually, if you read it out, says book of Genesis. The word there for Genesis or genealogy has to do with the origin of something. And so when this phrase is used in the Hebrew sense in the Old Testament, it introduces a list of names and then the stories that follow. So it's an introduction to say, I'm going to give you a list of names, and then I'm going to show you where that list of names leads, the stories that come out of it. And so most likely, Matthew is using this phrase to introduce Matthew chapters 1 and 2. And so he's saying, this is the book of the origin of Jesus. I'm going to show you biologically from whom Jesus came, and I'm going to show you geographically from where Jesus came. So when Matthew says book of Genesis here, he's thinking biology, family tree, and he's also thinking geography. Where did Jesus come from? Where did the Messiah come from? So he's talking about two, two points there. But what I don't want us to miss is that the New Testament begins with the phrase book of Genesis. Now you don't have to be a Bible scholar or really don't even have to be paying that close of attention to realize, hey, maybe there's something going on there. We don't want to overplay this, but it is powerful that the New Testament begins book of Genesis when your Old Testament, your Hebrew Bible, begins with what book? The book of Genesis. And so in some way, Matthew is keen us into everything that's come before that God's creation of the world and all of the plans that have come out of that have been leading to this new creation of a type. This new Genesis that is coming that's going to point us to Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew doesn't do a whole lot to develop that Genesis framework, but here's one thing he does that's pretty, pretty powerful. In the creation of the world in Genesis chapter 1, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the expanse, is, is at work in the chaos, and is going to bring creation, it's going to bring order from that. The Holy Spirit is also directly related in the birth of Jesus. And Jesus is born into a world of chaos. Jesus is born into a world that is under so much darkness. And the Holy Spirit comes and brings the Son of God into the world to bring light and hope. Genesis chapter 1 in your Old Testament, the Spirit of God works in creation and brings light into darkness. Matthew chapter 1, the Spirit of God works in a new Genesis, a new creation, a new coming of light into darkness through the coming of Jesus Christ. And the other thing this does for us, and, and we're not going to talk about it a lot now because it's going to be weeks to come, Matthew, more than any other of the Gospels that you read in the New Testament, Matthew uses the phrase, this was to fulfill the Scripture. Matthew is obsessed with how the coming of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus fulfills the scriptures that have been written before. And so Matthew, in a small way, is keying you into that with the phrase, book of Genesis. Remember the book of Genesis? That's being fulfilled. Remember all those other scriptures that were written? Those are being fulfilled as well right now. And so that very opening phrase gives us an idea of what's to come. Right after that phrase, the book 
of the genealogy or the book of Genesis of whom? Jesus Christ. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Christ is the word for Messiah. Uh, When we teach our kids about the word Messiah, generally we'll use the word rescuer. Uh, There's a lot that's wrapped up in the term Christ or, or Messiah. There were expectations among the people of God that a Messiah would come And the main job of the Messiah was to rescue the people of Israel, to rescue the people of God from their foreign enemies. So they were looking for a Messiah to come. Most of the expectations, not all of them, but most of the expectations is that the Messiah would come as a warrior king who would come with an army, either spiritual or physical, to rescue them from their foreign enemies. And so there was an expectations among the people that that the Messiah would come. That's the reason we use the word rescuer with kids is Messiah, Christ, doesn't doesn't work particularly well with with little ones. Frankly, it's confusing sometimes for adults as well. And so the idea that the rescuer would come, someone would come who would rescue God's people from their enemies. They thought foreign armies, ultimately we would be rescued from sin and death. And the Messiah would come. Who's the Messiah? Matthew doesn't wait to tell us. He says, I'm going to show you how Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Who is Jesus as well? He is the son of David. Matthew, more than any of the other gospel writers, will refer to Jesus as son of David. It's one of his favorite phrases to use when he's talking about the ministry and the person of Jesus. He'll talk about Jesus as the son of David. Why is this so important? Because David is the preeminent king He is the one who rescued them, people, from the foreign powers, David and Goliath. This is our annual reminder that the David and Goliath story is not primarily about defeating the the giants in your personal life. Uh, The David and Goliath story is about God's purpose of sending a king who will rescue his people from foreign powers and, and domination. And so the son of David would be one who would come like David, to be king, and to be the king who would rescue God's people and establish his kingdom. Second Samuel chapter 7, there's already a little bit of a preview that, th- that this would come. Second Samuel verse 9, referring to David and David's uh, household, his family, he says, I will make for you a great name, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The people of God lived with an expectation, and this is an important phrase, they lived with an expectation that a greater David would come, that there would be a time that a king and a ruler would come, that God's throne would always be established, but one would come to do more than even David was able to do. The reason we know this is because David himself in the Psalms would make reference to his Lord, and people would say, how can David have a Lord? Nobody's greater than David. It's like when your kids look at you and they say, nobody is greater than my dad. Nobody could be better. And you say, well, actually, you know, I am pretty fast and strong, but uh, there's people out there that that are even stronger than me. David is saying, yes, I've been established as the king, but one day there will be a king who will be even greater, who will come to establish the throne in the people of God forever. Son of David, but what's the other phrase that's used there? Jesus Christ would be 
the son of Abraham. So now, Jesus is tied not only to the kingdom through David, but now he's tied all the way back to Abraham as the great patriarch, as the great founder of the people of Israel. Genesis chapter 12 is is our connection point back here. Genesis 12, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Okay, time out. You gotta skip back a slide. What was referenced for David? 2 Samuel 7, 9. I will make for you a great name. That phrase had already been used of Abraham. Jump ahead to the next, where we were, yeah. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. The promise to Abraham becomes a promise to David that will ultimately be fulfilled through Jesus. They're purposefully all tied together, that this is where God's plan has been leading all along, that there will be one great name that everyone will look to for hope and salvation. And it won't be Abraham, it won't be David, it will be Jesus. Look what happens in verse three. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This same idea is reinforced in chapter 17 of Genesis. Genesis 17, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. What kings? David, but ultimately Jesus. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Now there's another important point that's tied in here. If we're not careful at this point, Jesus the Christ... Son of David, son of Abraham, could be thought that he would only come as the king and the ruler of the Jewish people. Because that's what's been established right here. Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish people. David, the great king of Israel. Now Jesus comes. And you don't have to read very far in your New Testament to find out that people began to put those together. Oh yeah, Jesus has come to be the ruler of the Jewish people. But when Matthew, in Matthew 1.1, says that Jesus is the Christ, the son of Abraham, this clues us in that Abraham was never meant to be just the father of the Jewish people, was he? He was going to be used to bless all nations and all people. And we're going to find very quickly in the genealogy that Matthew inserts a few non-Israelites in there to let you know that the promises to Abraham, those are about to be fulfilled in Jesus. Because he's not just coming for one type of person. He's not just coming for one group of people. He is coming as the Savior of all nations, of all peoples. He is Jesus the Christ, not Jesus a Christ. Look what happens in verse 17 of this chapter. When you skip down to verse to verse 17, you find something interesting. It says in verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, that was another 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the time of the coming of the Christ, that also was 14 generations. Okay, here's a couple of things going on in verse 17. Number one, 
Matthew paid attention in high school English class. So when he was taught high school English class, probably high school Greek class, but he also knew a lot of Hebrew, so who knows? I've messed up my whole analogy at this point. He paid attention in a high school writing class. He introduces his essay with a couple of key terms. Then he lays out his essay, all this list of names, and he comes around at the end and he repeats his key terms again. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. He came from Abraham and David. List of names, list of names, list of names. Verse 17. Oh yeah, these are the generations from Abraham to David. Then he inserts Babylon. We'll show you in a second why. And then he talks about the Christ. So he is telling you from the beginning of his book who's important. Abraham, David, Jesus. He's giving you an idea that these are the key terms that he's going to come back to. But why is he obsessed with the number 14 here? Now, what's, what's going on? Why is it three sets of 14? If you guys hang around Emmaus long enough, you'll find out that I have a very unhealthy obsession with the number three. Um, everything should fit into to groups of three. I like to think it reflects the Trinity, like there's something really behind it. It's probably just an unhealthy part of my personality that can just be obsessive, compulsive, and neurotic at times. So I, I love the number three. Matthew loves the number three and the number 14. He's going to tie these together. Now, what was Matthew by profession, occupation? He was a tax collector. So his accountant background is, is showing through here. Like he, can't, he can't hide the fact that he's really an accountant at heart. Like He needs everything to add up in columns that perfectly match. So Matthew is the guy that going down the road, he taps his hand twice on the steering wheel, and then he has to tap his left hand twice on the steering wheel to make sure all of life evens out in that moment. Am I the only person that does that? I am. All right, good to know. Um, Matthew needs everything to be, to be symmetrical. But again, why, why, the number, why the number 14? Well, there's a couple of guesses at this, and, and they go beyond guesses. There's real background to this. Let me show you why we think the number 14 is such a big deal. In Hebrew, letters corresponded to numbers. And so words took on a numerical count. The name David, if you add, now remember, we're, not, we're, we're using English equivalents here, not the actual Hebrew letter, but the letter D equaled four. The middle consonant, Hebrew words have, have three consonants, or, or they're made up of three consonants. The middle letter equaled six, and then there's the D again. What do you get when you add up four, six, and four? Fourteen. David is the 14th name listed in the genealogy. Why is Matthew using three groups of 14? Because he wants us to see David as the key turning point for understanding the coming of Jesus. He's tying the number 14 back to the name of David. Here's the other thing that seems to happen with 14. And we're on a little bit shakier ground here, but I still think there's something to it. Three fourteens is the same as six sevens. There was a well-accepted view in, in Jewish thinking that history, now remember seven is the perfect number, the, the complete number, it's a prominent number in, in, 
in biblical thinking and even just general ancient thinking, um, the number seven would be complete. So if you had six groups of seven, your seventh seven would be the perfect climax and fulfillment of all that was to come before. So Matthew, by using three fourteens, also lays out six groups of seven. The seventh seven would be the perfect fulfillment. Who do all these names point to? They point to Jesus, who would be the perfect fulfillment and climax of all that God had been doing among his people before. So that seems to be one of the prominent reasons that we have the number 14 in here. Go back to verse 17 just for a second. Because with this idea here in, in verse 17, you also see the, the key turning points. It goes from Abraham with the establishment of the people to David with the establishment of the kingdom. And then it talks about the deportation to Babylon. Amanda and I were talking uh, this, this last week, and I grew up going to church, going to Sunday school. It's probably because I wasn't paying attention, but I'm pretty sure that I was in college before I heard very much about the exile. In your Bible, when it says deportation to Babylon, what it's referring there is what we call the exile. So the people of God are living in the promised land under the kingdom, except the kingdom splits into two, and the people continue to rebel against God, and ultimately, God sends them out of the land into exile. Now, they begin slowly to come back into the land as well when you get to the end of the Old Testament, but there's still indications that by the time that Jesus came, the people still felt like they were in exile. They didn't feel fully like they were living in God's land under his rule. And so the coming of Jesus is going to take Abraham, David, and the return from exile and bring all of those things to perfect fulfillment, once again, focused on Jesus. Uh, now, we obviously don't have time to walk through every name uh, in, in the list. And frankly, I can't read every name in, in the list, which is evidenced by my little trick earlier. You would have thought that so we could change out microphones, but I was already planning to, to not read all those words. Let me show you a couple of things that might be interesting to you or, or might really stand out from this list that are important. Look in verse uh, 3. Let's start in verse 3. A couple of things that, that might stand out. Oh, actually, let's start in verse 2. I'm sorry, my mistake. Verse 2. In verse 2 it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. There were 11 other, there were 12 total that came to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Now the lineage of Jesus will come through Judah, but Matthew sneaks in the phrase, and his brothers, to let the people know that Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of all the tribes of Israel. It's Matthew's way of saying nobody gets left out of being under the kingship of Jesus. It's not just the people that came through Judah, it's all the tribes of Israel that will fall under, and, and not only just fall under, but that will receive the blessings of, of the coming of, of Jesus. Let's skip down to verse 11. You get down to verse 11, and it talks about how Josiah was the father of Jeconiah, 
and his brothers. We get another and his brothers. By the time you get to Josiah and Jeconiah in your Bible, the people of God are in complete chaos. There is battles over who's in charge of Jerusalem at this time. There's battles over who actually is king. You can't tell who is actually a brother and who's a nephew and who's a cousin. It, it, it's just a mess. And so you get all this brought together here at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, then you get another reference to Jeconiah. The irony here is you go from David, the great king, and five verses later, everything is in shambles. And so it's a way of saying, look how quickly things can fall apart under human rule in our world. Everything looks great, and the next thing you know, it's all crumbling from, from the inside. Yet, here's the key, it doesn't stop God's plan. God is still in control. He's still working to move everything to fulfillment in Jesus. You get down to verse 16. Uh, obviously an interesting point here in verse 16. The reference to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Now up to this point we have father of, father of, he begat this person, he begat this person. Then you have a very prominent change in verse 16. Matthew is making clear that Joseph is not the human father, the biological father of Jesus. He's setting the stage for the Christmas story. He's making clear that Joseph plays a different role. When he says, of whom Jesus was born, that word whom is a singular feminine pronoun. It can only point to one person, and that's Mary. And so Matthew is very clear that Joseph is going to play a role but he's not the biological father. The emphasis here is definitely placed on Mary. And this is where the genealogy gets really interesting. Because before Mary is listed, there are four other women that are listed in this genealogy. Go back to verse 3. It seems up to this point that Matthew is very anti-female. He's listed all these dudes, but he hasn't listed a lot of ladies. But he is very intentional with what he does. And in fact, he's very countercultural with what he does of his time to insert these women into this genealogy. Back in verse 3, you have a reference to Judah, who was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now that seems innocent enough until you go back and read the story of Tamar. Uh, parents, fair warning, if you read the story of Tamar with, with your kids, it is, I was about to say PG-13, it's just R, R-rated. Like, let's skip PG-13. It, it's a situation of incest and seduction and prostitution and nobody comes out looking great in, in this story. It, it's a story with a lot of uh, sexual immorality, it shows the immorality of the people uh, in this situation. Judah, who's going to be one of the tribes of Israel, comes across as uh, just not a great guy in, in this situation. And, and Tamar seduces uh, her father-in-law in this situation. You go on to verse 5. You have Salmon, who's the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who is Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute herself. 
Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Now, Ruth, by all indications, was morally pure, but her situation of encountering Boaz has a little bit of sexual innuendo built, built into it. There's some suspicion about the situation going on there, but, but by all indications, she, she was pure in the way she approached Boaz, but it's a suspicious situation. Her integrity uh, was at risk. And then you get the phrase here, Boaz, the father oh, uh, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba doesn't even get her name in the list. She just gets listed as the wife of Uriah. What draws these women together? What do we learn from this? What we learn from this is all four women have a checkered, suspicious sexual history, and all four women are non-Israelites. They are not Jews by biological descent. Why does it matter that Matthew would include these women in the genealogy? Because this is the preview of exactly the ministry that Jesus will have. The people he will love, the people he will go after and care for. Those who have a suspicious, morally corrupt background, and those who are ethnic outsiders. Do you know who those people are? That's you and me. Like, we don't look at these women and say, man, I'm glad Jesus included them. We look at these, men, these women and think, I'm glad Jesus included them because otherwise I have no chance. That the ministry of Jesus, that this kingdom that he was establishing would not be a kingdom of one ethnic group or one racial group. It wouldn't be a kingdom of people who earn their way in because they live in a particular way. It would be a kingdom of people who have suspicious, morally corrupt backgrounds and who don't fit into the accepted categories of the day. Those are the people Jesus would go after with love and truth and grace. And in the middle of a boring list of names, Matthew hammers it right in, this is the king who will come and this is what his kingdom will be like. And I don't know about you, but that is really good news. That the book that we're going to study with the book of Matthew is a book of people just like us who need a king and need to know what it looks like to live in the kingdom. So what does it look like to worship the king and live as in kingdom? Well, it's actually summed up, I think, a little bit by a phrase that we use a lot at Emmaus. And that's the phrase that we exist to proclaim and display Jesus. We exist to proclaim and display Jesus. What does Matthew 1 teach us as a church? What, what do I want us to take away from this? That if this is the foundation of our Savior, if this is the foundation of the New Testament, we will live to proclaim Jesus as King. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That that will be our confession. If you come from a family where your family of origin is a mess, where you look at your family lineage, and you say, there's nothing there to build my life on. 
The good news of the gospel is that your family of origin does not define who you will be as a person. That we are adopted and brought into the family of God. That you are made part of his family, not because you earned your way in, but because of his grace and his love and his forgiveness. That all you have to do is confess, proclaim that Jesus is king. And this is a good news in a world where people are looking for order, where they're looking for places of authority and stability. It's good news in a world where people are hurting, where they desire something different, and you can say, I know who's able to provide that. And you proclaim Jesus. You point them to Jesus. The other part of the proclaim Jesus phrase, I hope Matthew 1 is a reminder of how important it is to be able to tell the story of Scripture. Now, when you read that list of names in Matthew 1, none of us, me, well, maybe there's some in here who are able to do this, but practically none of us, me included, are able to say exactly what every one of those people did. There's going to be details that you're not going to get right. But as a part of God's kingdom, we want to be able to tell the story from creation to Christ. That in a couple of minutes, you could walk someone through the highlights of the story. You say, I don't know how to do that. Well, hey, if you show up to Emmaus in 2019, we will give you a book to be able to do that. And we'll tell you which chapters to read, and we'll guide you through that process. If you come to Emmaus on the morning of December 9th for our Christmas production, it's about creation to Christ. If you don't know how to do this, Go out and buy a kid's storybook Bible (laughs) that will guide you from creation to Christ to see how these pieces are put together. You don't want to say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, and someone says, well, why is that a big deal? I don't know. I just follow Jesus. Well, that's a good starting point. We want to start there, but it's good to be able to talk to someone and say, yeah, God created the world, and he did this and this and this, and it all pointed to Jesus and I believe that he is the king of the world, and I worship him. That's generally what we want to be able to do in speaking to people about our faith. So we proclaim Jesus, and then we display Jesus through kingdom living. What does kingdom living look like? It looks like the book of Matthew. In the early church, the book of Matthew was used as a discipleship manual for new Christians. They didn't use that phrase, for for new followers of Jesus, followers of the way. Matthew was one of their core discipleship books. If you want to know what it looks to live like as part of the kingdom, live as part of the kingdom, let's go through Matthew together and see what that looks like. There's one very particular thing we know from Matthew chapter 1 we've already talked about. How do we display the kingdom? We include people who are considered outsiders. Because Jesus included us. If we believe the power of the gospel, then we will be the first people to reach out to the nations who are considered outsiders, and we will be the first people to reach out to our neighbors who are considered outsiders. You say that person has a very suspicious past. There's a lot of suspicion about about their sexual background. Well, guess what? That's exactly the people that Matthew 1 points toward. That person's not like me. They're from a different racial group or a different ethnic group. Well, guess what? That's exactly what Matthew 1 looks like, that those are the people brought into the kingdom of God because that's us first. 
when we know what it is to be forgiven, when we know what it is to experience the power of God's grace and love, it transforms the way that we display the kingdom in our lives. What is Matthew 1 about? It's about kingdom connection. How do you live in kingdom connection? You speak about Jesus and you show Jesus with your life because there is no other name that brings salvation and hope and life. Let's pray together. After we pray together, we're going to do what we often do. We're going to stand and, and sing a psalm together about the hope we have in Christ. During that psalm, we take up our offering, and you might have one of those guest cards or a tear-out from the bulletin to put in there. But during that psalm, as we sing and as we give, we also want to give you a chance to pray. If you're hurting because of your personal family background, maybe you don't feel like you're good enough, maybe you're hurting because of things in your family of origin or things in your home, we want to be able to pray for you. Maybe you've always felt like an outsider to the people of God and not realized Jesus' love and purpose for your life. Maybe you've never proclaimed him as king and as Lord. We want to give you a chance to do that this morning, that you would come and there would be someone to pray for you at the front. I pray that you would know the joy and the hope of living as part of God's kingdom, that there is no other name that brings salvation and true life other than Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.